Welcome, People First Leaders. This is a special episode of the Leading People First podcast, where you get to listen in on the honest and uncomfortable conversations from our latest Leaders of Equity, Allyship, and Diversity event. If you are ready to take a stand and take action against hate, violence, inequity, and injustice in our society, you are not alone. The Leaders for Equity, Allyship, and Diversity host weekly events to allow leaders to come together, discuss, learn, share, and activate to make a difference in the world. Listen to the end to get more information how you can join us at our next live event. In this episode, we kick off our Pride series where we explore the intersectionalities within the LGBTQIA2S community. This week, we're joined by Heather Holmes, Mandy Carter, and Michael Sachs as we discuss ageism within the community. So get ready to come together and lead, and let's dive in. All right, let's get our conversation going. So panelists, please unmute. I'm going to say five statements, and then I just want your one-word reaction, and it's okay to say a cuss word. All people that are gay and over 65 are affluent. I I can see Yvonne's face like, what? (laughs) No. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, I thought we had to wait for all five questions. We're supposed to say something after each one. Just say something. I was going to say hell to the no. Right, right. Big time not. Okay, if you are over 65, you automatically stop having sex. No. (laughs) No. I won't use my cuss word this time, no. (laughs) (laughs) And if you're over 65 and also GLBTQ+, you're not having much sex. (laughs) Maybe. Maybe. (laughs) More selective, perhaps. Yeah. That's it might look idea. different, but you're still like intimate and sexual, right? Like, right. I mean, mm-hmm. our society hypersexualizes what sex is. So I would mm-hmm. like to unpack like what sex is, honestly, with these questions. But you're definitely still like intimate, connecting, having sexual experiences. That's exactly it. Stay tuned to lead for a discussion of what sex actually is. However, uh, question three. If you're over 65 and LGBTQ+, you are totally secure in your gay identity. Not always. Yeah. (laughs) Mostly not. All right. Last but not least, if you are GLBTQ plus aging, you better get ready to fade out of all gay social life. No. No. Absolutely not. Why did I ask you? Get ready. I have all the socialization for you. Oh my God, socialized enough for everyone on this call. Um, But the reason I'm asking all of these ridiculous questions is because these are common stereotypes. These are common stereotypes that you drop off the grid completely as soon as you basically gray out. And that is not true. But there, there are different aspects of GLBTQ life that you need to think about in, rea- in regards to this. So um, without further ado, I want to briefly introduce our spectacular panel. Uh, we have Mandy Carter from North Carolina. Um, if you have ever seen an acronym that makes you feel powerful, she was probably there when it started. Um, <laughs> she's a 50 plus year veteran of Movements to liberate all of us, black folks, gay folks, lady folks, all the folks, she was there. And she's really honored us today with her presence. And to be honest, 
one of the nicest people I have ever met on Zoom. Um, Miss Heather Holmes or Mrs. Heather Holmes. Um, she uh, is a friend of mine from going on the way back and also an old neighbor, believe it or not. Um, she is an amazing advocate for older folks and an amazing advocate for older GLBTQ folks. She's the executive director of Owlish, which is specifically a nonprofit that's about advocating for older GLBTQ plus folks. And she is here to tell us kind of about her business, what she's experienced and, you know, I think what 17 years in elder care that you've worked. And then of course you've, you know, had your lived experience. So that's, you know, possibly also helpful. So, and thank you for being here. And Mr. Michael C. Martinez Sachs, who is the uh, assistant vice president and Dean of Students at John Jay College of Law for CUNY. Do you say CUNY, SUNY? I don't even know. CUNY, City University of New York. There you go. Um, I just want, I didn't want to say it wrong. Um, who is here to talk to us about uh, where he's at? You know, he's not retired yet. He's still out there, but um, he has a lot of life experience and frankly is a super accomplished speaker. Also a Toastmaster, me too. Toastmaster Pride. So um, that is who we've got at the end of the call. I have a short message from uh, Dr. Jane Fleischman, who wrote The Stonewall Generation. She is an internationally known expert on basically sex, um, sex and aging, sex and all the things. Um, and I will be giving a book, a copy of The Stonewall Generation away to someone on this call. So if you're not here, too bad. So we're going to start out with our first basic question for all you fine panelists. And the first one is, uh, you three folks are kind of at different spots in the aging process, but it is part of your lives. Tell me a little bit about how aging, or perhaps in Heather's case, elderly folks, have changed your identity. How do you feel you're different now as you've aged through your life? So I came out in high school, not 100%, but came out. And that was, that was in the 70s and 80s. So this, you know, my, my life has changed quite a lot since then. And when I got to college, we had a very small LGBT, it was just LGB at that point group. We met in the basement of a church. You know, I became an advocate. I was president of the club. I would do the uh, AIDS quilt. I had a cousin-in-law my brother-in-law's nephew who died of AIDS and I knew a number of people I would go and help out. So I was, I was a big advocate at that point. And I, as I mentioned before, everybody got on, I did in higher education for about 30 years. And during much of that time, I was uh, an advocate, but also working in these LGBT, LGBTQ, LGBTQ plus centers um, in the higher education realm, advocating and mentoring uh, students as they came up through this process. Uh, as I've moved sort of to becoming an older LGBTQ person, you know, my life, you know, we talked about, do you still have a social life? Well, my social life when I was 20 or 21 was very different than my social life is today. And for me, it's about aging gracefully, helping those 
who are younger than you to understand that there are some of these fights have been fought, um, but appreciating what's come before and honoring those who have really made changes in this movement. Uh, as I mentioned before, I, you know, I worked at um, SAGE, uh, looking and helping older LGBTQ persons who do not have anybody there, advocating for them, helping them uh, to be successful, and then doing everything that I can within my realm to be a person that individuals can come to for advice and try to make a difference within my own realm. So I'll tell you most recently, Mark, you don't even know this, uh, John Jay has never had an LGBTQ plus center. I was able to make that happen and about six weeks ago it happened, maybe, maybe two months ago at this point. So we now have a free sending center with an actual person who's 100% uh, staff member for that center. And so, you know, even in this day and age, the fact that John Jay, which is a criminal and social justice college of 15,000 students, we still didn't have a place that LGBTQ plus folks could come and be a part of that community in a place that they felt safe and was their own. So, you know, I fight the good fight as often as I can, and I, I, I do what I can, but the way I did it 25, 30, 40 years ago is very different than the way I'm doing it now. I'm not out there marching, I'm not out there holding the banners, but I'm certainly out there supporting and maybe writing the check and sitting on the board. It's all about what you could do at the time of life you're at and what resources you have to do it. Heather, how would you respond? Yeah, I'll pick it up from there because I want to say, Michael, it's super important for those who want to join boards and write the checks, right? Because I am at a different stage in this journey. Um, full transparency, I'm a 38-year-old lesbian woman. Um, and I feel like this work is my dharma. Like it chose me. It's what my spirit wants to do. And I'm just deeply grateful. Um, like I moved all the time by people like Mandy and people who have like done the fight and trailblaze. Like I never knew a world of like Stonewall and I was pretty young during the AIDS epidemic. And then I was like, marriage equality is amazing, but like, why wouldn't we have it? You know, so I have a little bit different perspective and then working in senior living for 17 years, I clearly had residents and individuals I loved that were LGBTQ plus and they couldn't identify as that. And I saw like they weren't able to be authentic in like senior living communities or just how they're living out their life. And they didn't have the same access, right? Like even before marriage equality, still, if you don't want to get married, you know, but before marriage equality, like me and my wife, if I passed away, she wouldn't have access to my social security, healthcare, housing, all those perks, you know, that like federal government gives based on like heterosexuality. Um, and so I just really feel like it's my turn to take up this fight and I am energized. I'm ready. I want to create the space. I really don't want Alice or Heather to be at the center of what this is going to be. Um, I'm trying to create environments where we can bring individuals who have fought and they can say, Heather, this is what we need as we age and I will do it for them. Like, please tell me what you need and I'm gonna make that happen for you. Um, and so this work really combined two of my biggest passions, which has always been elderly, senior living, 
older adults, I'm big on the life cycle of a woman. So if you're familiar with like maiden mother crone, I was like born a crone goddess. I can't wait to be a 90 year old woman. Like it's my goal in life. Um, but it combined that passion for senior living and then the LGBTQ plus community that embraced me so wholeheartedly. Um, and so this is like how I'm gonna give back during the one life I have right now on, on this planet. Beautiful. Mandy? Well, this is Mandy Carter. She, her, hers here in Durham, North Carolina at the age of 72. I'm part of the 72 million post-World War II baby boomers born between 1948 and 64. Um, I guess what I'd like to share, and I, was, I said this earlier before the, the, um, we got onto the official thing, I was born and my brother and sister, our mother had us and she left and never came back. So we, I was raised in the system of uh, upstate New York and Albany children's home, Schenectady children's home, a black foster family in Chatham Center, New York. But my question was, how did we all get here? Uh, I would say to you that in one way, and I didn't realize this, but you know, for me, because at that time, uh, the system in New York, you were just put into the public school system. That's been, that's a game changer. I'm not sure they do that right now. And I don't know if anyone else is on here that either works with or part of the foster care or group living um, or adoption. Um, but because you got put into the public school, we we're just known as the kids from the home. No big whoop. But these are the years, 62, Cuban Missile Crisis, 63, Kennedy assassinated in Dallas, Texas, 64. You start seeing the images of the images coming up from the South. And to be in Schenectady to New York, you know, we're only like, you know, not that far from New York City, but it was our social studies teacher. Anyone here a social studies teacher? Thank you. He bought someone in from the American Friends Service Committee, never heard of that group before, but that one class literally is why I'm here all these years later, understanding about the impact. So, um, but I would also say for me to come out, when I decided to come out, I don't even think there was a word for it. I think when I was like 16 or 17, I think the word was homosexual. And I remember going down to the card index file in the high school and you know, you, you know the old pull out the old thing and didn't want anyone to see I was in the H at the H files like I'm only looking for homosexual. The only cards were there like well of loneliness and all these horrible kind of negative. Um, but I didn't have a name for it then. But at some point when I realized I didn't have a name but it was accepting me. If I said me, I'm gay, I'm a lesbian, I'm coming out. But here's the critical thing. I had no parents. I didn't have to worry about the parents thing. Didn't realize that until going further. But to make a long story short, the journey for me, you age out at 18. Where did I go? San Francisco. Everyone was going to San Francisco the summer of love in 1967. And to be in San Francisco, to be there compared to what I saw in New York City coming out at the 18 of the bars, it was like night and day. That's just me. But, I, but it would be interesting if you, everyone went around and you shared about where were you, what were the influences, why does it matter? But then if you got together like we're doing now and thinking about what were the two or three things that really made the difference? Um, I would also say that a, a, a critical part of being in San Francisco at the time was also the beginning of the war in Vietnam, what was happening in the civil rights movement. And King gave that famous speech, April 4, 67 at the Riverside Church generationally, that was just almost what we're having now, multi-generational, what it matters. Uh, 
Anyway, I was in San Francisco for many years working with the War Resisters League. You know what I missed? I missed the Four Seasons. And there was an office, a WRL office in Durham, North Carolina. I got here in 82 and I've been here ever since. Oh, I did work at the Human Rights Campaign up in DC for three or four years, but home is here. Um, I think the other thing I would just end with, I am intrigued by a couple of things. If you remember, and I'm glad, I, I don't use the word gay marriage, I use the word marriage equality. It was the loving versus the state of Virginia, interracial marriage that was a game changer. It didn't matter if people liked it or not, but that was a 5-4 decision, remember that. And so when this whole issue of marriage equality started coming up, there had been a legal conversation about are there kind of similarities, are there some connections and whatever. To make a very long story short, Edie Windsor winning that case. And before then, what was the name of that couple? They had an interesting long name of the couple, um, but that legally, that's a game changer. But the same time, that moment that Edie Windsor won that landmark case with marriage equality, the Supreme Court all but gutted the Voting Rights Act of 1965. So we're gonna talk about all of our identities and what is it that we have similar, why we need to be in allies with each other, but sometimes while you have one pitting against the other, um, that might be a conversation we wanna think about moving forward. I like being, uh, the, the first time someone called me an elder, I said, really? I like it now, yeah, I'm, I'm an elder. Anyway, but I'm glad to be a part of this conversation. I think it's interesting because generationally, Mark, I'm looking at you and you just, you know, you said how old you are, Michael and Heather and anyone else on here. But the commonality is that we have to figure out quality of life, with, with how we make that happen, no matter where we live, um, how we go about our business. So count me in. I love that. So those were extremely thoughtful and very, uh, I'm going to say, chewy responses, because there is a lot of information there, right? Um, I think where I want to go next is to talk a little bit about the impact of the AIDS crisis on your generation of, uh, although you are in three separate generations, technically, um, let's talk about the impact um, of that and how it's really changed your trajectory. When I was in high school in the late 70s, uh, you know, this was something that was slightly being talked about, but on the news and sort of under, you know, when you're a high school kid, you're not really listening to things. But when I got to college, that's when the issue really started coming about and you talked about the gay cancer and stuff. And it, it, it really changed the way that I think a lot of the students there, when I came in as a freshman and 82 and those who were older it it really created this generational differences in 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 sex and what it meant to be gay and a lot of the advocacy went from lgbt lgb at the time right and focusing on aids so when i was in college what i remember very distinctly is the advocacy, the fundraising, the health, everything about AIDS. And at that point, it was the, some of you are younger, probably don't know there was a quilt. I don't even know where it is anymore. Um, but everybody, many, many people who had died, uh, their families, friends, lovers would create 
uh, quilt square and they made it into a giant quilt. And I was there seeing some of these very first quilts. I went to Washington, D.C. to see the quilt that was spread on the lawn. Uh, I participated in creating quilts. I know many, many people who had quilt squares. So for me, that's, that was a, it was a, not that I knew there was a, a game to change, but for me, when I was coming out full-fledged, which was in college, um, everything started focusing on AIDS, 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 the movies, the events. You, you couldn't even see, you couldn't go and see a gay themed movie or play uh, without AIDS coming into the conversation. Now, I'm not saying this is a bad thing, but it was the way that this was the, the this is what was on everybody's mind. This is what was on everybody's tongue because everybody was so afraid. Um, at that point, they didn't even know how it was transmitted. They knew some idea that it was transmitted, but you would go in and you'd, you'd see A wards with doctors with you know whole mat, hat mask uh, stuff on because they weren't a hundred percent certain that it was only through blood or through. Uh, fluids of that sort. So it was a very scary time, um, particularly when you're coming out and you're, you know, a young man and you you might be a little more sexual. You're like, everybody was just freaked out. And I, I remember that era distinctly uh, because everybody was so concerned that this is something that could be disastrous that could take out the whole gay community because we didn't know what, why, how, there was absolutely no cure. And basically, if you got AIDS, it was a death sentence. That's all there was to it. It was a death sentence. And that was a pretty scary thing. You know, as I got older and they discovered how uh, it was transmitted and, and the, there were drugs that would help to prolong life. And now, of course, um, we're in a, a different world. Uh, I look to see and I say, you know, having lived through that time was a not only remarkable, but a highly stressful time to be gay. And we talked about the, the Q term, the queer term. Um, you know, for me, when I grew up, that was a term that meant you were gonna get chased, beaten up, hit, um, attacked, or something else, which is why I don't like the term. Um, it has a lot of negative connotations because it always ended up with a, uh, a curse word in the front, a curse word in the back, and then something that connected to AIDS or you F and Q you're going to, and I hope you die of. So that was a very common thing when I grew up and I can, I, I remember very clearly, I went to a very conservative college. Um, yeah, it was, it was a scary time. So that's how much of my world growing up as a young gay man um, was focused on is that whole idea. And you couldn't even have, you couldn't go out and have a conversation without the AIDS thing coming into play. How do you think that that has affected, that experience has affected your feelings about living a, a healthy aging life? Well, I think when I was younger and it, it certainly learned more about things like the transmission of uh, you since I haven't I haven't lived any other life I can't say how I would change but I think it made me more cautious at least when I was younger 
got later on we knew what what and how maybe that <laughs> and it actually may have done you'd have gone the other way you were so cautious when you were you know 17 18 19 years old 20 that when you finally discovered what the causes were and how it was transmitted and how it wasn't transmitted you're like okay as long as i don't do those things i can do whatever i want <laughs> i love that um yeah yeah basically huh uh miss bandy you know this is a uh, very emotional i was living in san francisco remember i hitched up hitchhiked out there in 67 i remember distinctly there wasn't a name for it but all of a sudden there was something happening in the in, in the san francisco bay area and at some point they became up, I guess, sorry, whatever the name might've been, but what was so striking, San Francisco isn't that large. Is anyone, is anyone, if you ever been there, it's a very confined area and the lesbians were there and the gay men were the cast room, whatever. But when that happened, there's a publication called the Bay Area Reporter. You would be afraid to pick that up because it was name after name after name, people you knew. And what's so remarkable is that at that moment, and, and don't even get me started about the, the nothing, silence, crickets, but it would be the lesbian community that ultimately would end up finding some way. And I, the I, irony of being in, the, in San Francisco, you know, where it's almost like, why did it have to be that to make realize how much we had to work together? I will tell you that I think one of the most um, game-changing moments was that names quilt. The March on Washington in 87, that quilt on the mall. And Reagan was in the White House and no one came down, but what I thought was so remarkable, I'm just so struck about the love and the caring. Each one was the exact same size and dimension, but you put the love in it, it would be so unique to the person and their name, whatever. And you would stand there in silence. That, that, that's one of those you never knew. Um, but I would also say that, uh, The other conversation I have to be honest about, in the black community, they had the first ever AIDS, they had the first ever conference on AIDS in the black community in Washington, DC. The National Black Gay and Lesbian Leadership Forum, we were there. And to hear a doctor from Harlem tell you that the second leading cause of death in Harlem is AIDS, but you'll never know it because no mom's gonna sign that death certificate or gonna acknowledge it. And I look back on that moment, I just wonder, had that been different about whether you would be willing to have the conversation or not about how AIDS was impacting the communities of color, not just gay folk, you know, and, and it wouldn't be until some of the black churches saying, where's my, where's my parishioners? So what, what lesson did we learn from that in terms of what happened around the AIDS crisis and going forward? But for me, I'm just sitting here thinking about, there's times when you have to figure out how we as a community comes together and we have to be the very people who have this conversation. And what are the lessons learned going forward? Uh, yeah, um, just blessed. And there's a, a wonderful gentleman um, uh, who's now with the Black, Black AIDS Institute. You know, there's not other ones as well within the different communities. Phil Wilson, you know, and they have, you know, and by the way, real quick, here in Durham and here in North Carolina, we have the Research Triangle Park. Where do you think all that stuff is being? Uh, formulated just here right here in the triangle area so when the AIDS crisis was happening and people are thinking about the medications is going to come up with the different um, formulas or whatever and you have it all here and some of them are now with the COVID but it was like is that about money is that about who can have access um, who can or cannot um, 
but yeah, and we are, and here we are all these years later, but a lesson learned, a valuable lesson that sometimes we have to create our own and be our own to make this thing work for each other. Anyway, Heather. <laughs> yeah, I just want to say I really respect Mandy and Michael. Thank you for sharing your experience and living through that. I was a teenager, like an early teenager during that time. And my first exposure to it was my mom was raised in a very large Catholic family. Um, and out of nine kids, the ninth one was a boy um, who was gay. And we always had big family dinners every Sunday night at my grandma's house. Um, and I remember like the like small conversations, right? That were very quiet and the whispers. And then um, he was HIV positive and then he had AIDS. And it was this big issue in this Catholic family um, that would be whispered about at family dinner, but no one would talk about. And it was always related to being gay. And I for sure knew at that time I was gay and I like tried to tell my mom. She didn't believe me because it's not biblical, right? Um, but I was so scared to come out. I was like terrified that this was what happened, right? Like biblically and like see what happened to your uncle. And so it was really used as a scare tactic against me um, to be authentic and um, who I was. And so I just really didn't understand that time. Um, and he was um, really big in like the restaurant community in Omaha and was fired illegally. And then there was this huge lawsuit. So his name was in the paper. And my mom was like mortified that, you know, people are going to know it was her brother. And so I just, there was all this like tension and drama and really like upset, emotional um, turmoil in our family um, during that time. Um, and I'm so grateful because he's still, he's been living with HIV AIDS now for 40 years. You know, he's still um, healthy and hanging on and um, doing really well. But um, a lot, what I've learned from it is just reading and reading. I've read a lot about just the lesbian culture and like the care and the movement and like showing up. And so I love that piece of um, that time period. But I think what's really impactful about this time is working with older adults who are LGBTQ, um, that time period has to be addressed. It has to be recognized. Um, there's gonna be elders still with AIDS and what are they bringing? You know, like what healthcare do they need? So as people advocating for this group, we fully need to understand that history, that trauma, the lovely things about it, like the community coming together and all those milestones that like Michael and Mandy talked about. I appreciate that so much because that's what I'm going to need to carry the work forward. So I think it's definitely a time period that needs to be addressed as this work continues. Well, that basically takes the words right out of my mouth to introduce our next question. Um, I've wanted to talk a little bit about history, as Heather said, because it informs how we care for older folks going forward. These people lived through a completely different life than people did even 40 years before them. So um, with that in, in mind, um, let's talk about services that are available or not available for LGBTQ folks now. Um, I just read a statistic that a third of all LGBTQ folks over 65 are at or below the poverty level. That surpasses straight folks, which shouldn't surprise anyone, and gives the lie to the uh, fake gay affluence. Um, so let's talk about what needs to be in place now 
for people in the future. Um, none of these folks are in an assisted living situation, but you know, what needs to happen to prepare folks for the future? So I'm going to go backwards this time and start with Heather. All right. So I think the discussion needs to start happening, right? Because people even will say like, well, on the coasts, LGBTQ older adults need financial help, but not the Midwest. I mean, like we're affluent, right? Like we don't need help here in the Midwest. And that's just not the case because there hasn't been any equity, let alone equality, right? Like you're not starting from the same line. Um, so I think, like I'm talking like Midwest cause that's kind of my um, like vision, my like blinders. But I, I think it resonates everywhere. Like we need Medicaid expansion. We pass it in Nebraska. It's not implemented. It needs to happen. We need inclusive home health care. We have no inclusive home health care. There's not one inclusive senior living community in Omaha that will say they're inclusive. Nobody has policies. There's zero affordable housing. There's not one affordable housing uh, like senior living or senior center besides the intercultural senior center in Omaha, Nebraska. Um, so there needs to be like education, more visibility, there needs to be advocacy, there needs to be policy. We need to start screaming that this group of individuals deserves the same rights, the same equity and support. Because all of our elders, right? Like regardless of like your sexuality, they're put in a, they're warehoused, they're put in a closet. Like our society values like youth and beauty and there's no wisdom in that. And it drives me insane because the people who you really can learn from and that are gonna like show you the way of life and like what really matters are our elders and we're warehousing them and we're putting them away and we're not addressing that we're all gonna die. So we need to just like start screaming and having the conversations. And then we need leaders who are gonna enact the policy that's gonna put provide the infrastructure and the support um, for this group. Thank you. <laughs> Mandy, what do you think? Well, ditto what Heather said. And I'm <laughs> sitting here and I'm thinking, um, it's interesting. Now here in, is, I think it's also geography. We live in a state that we have a, a like Republican controlled everything. They're not going to allow, you know, um, Obamacare, you know, and, 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 and figuring out systematically. And so there's a whole issue around how you vote for who's there and you provide that. And we are now going to get a 14th congressional district. So many people are moving to the state of North Carolina. A lot of them are elderly and or retiring. That makes a difference because if they move here and they're figuring out what's around them, how they can impact city, county, but I would also like to talk about the schools of social work, those social work schools, because if they're the ones who have a policy and they keep on, you know, repeating over and over again, you know, this is how it's always been, but who's making up those rules and regulations? Here's a thought. In the state of North Carolina, we have, we have way overbuilt these assisted facilities. They're sitting empty. They're literally sitting empty. What if there was a whole movement to buy them up and figure out how you can do like a collaborative or a cooperative, and then you create the rules and regulations about how you might want to have them that to have them work. Um, but the other thing is something that the AARP. I'm a card carrying member of the AARP. I'll own it, and we've been doing a lot of work with the North Carolina AARP. 
we've been working with groups like SAGE, there's GRIO, which is up in New York, which does a lot of LGBTQ of, of, uh, folk of color. But we came up with a questionnaire and we went around and asked, what are the questions we want to know? Can you, do, can you allow, like if your partner is there, you know, all the practical things you would want to do, like, because that's, that's the rest of your life. What would be the quality of life questions you would ask? And if they're not, then people need to know, don't go here. You know, I mean, it's almost like thinking outside the box. How can you really think uh, creatively and, and, and thinking about how that might make a difference? But for the AARP and other organizations, they have like a whole thing called prepare to care. But there's other non-governmental, some of them are just uh, nonprofits like Heather and other groups that you start. What if, think outside the box, that you create some other way to really uh, to shape the narrative and think about that. And then it's also generational. I'm 72, but I'm not, I don't mind living with someone who's 50 or 30, but here everything is 55. Like who came up with that idea? Um, but, but, I, but I like the idea of, I think it's really creative and, and um, I, I guess I'm getting excited and I'm thinking about why I always think there's nothing we can do because that's always how it's always been. I think that's the challenge. Um, I think the other final thing I would like to say is I'm just curious. Uh, if you were to, if each one of you were to take a map and say, what, what, when you say older, elder, what age are you giving? You know, you now have a lot of youth groups. And I said, well, what, how old is youth? Some of them are 13 to 18. Some of them are 18 to 30, you know, so who gets to define what youth is? And I, and I really led by and, and um, motivated by the very youth, or is it like, someone else telling this is what you need to do. I think the same could be true with seniors and elders as well. I'll own, I like the word elder. So there's a group called the National Council of Elders. We are like 21st, 20th century organizers. A lot of us in the peace and justice movement, environmental, but we want to intentionally work with the 21st century and thinking about how that could be a, an intentional generational thing that could happen looking forward. Because at some point, People are going to get to be 50, 60, 70, 80, you know, whatever it might be. But that excites me is about what the potential could be. Um, so that's my answer. Bring it, Michael. Thank you. I, I agree with what everybody said. I have for a long time thought there needs to be an LGBTQ plus facility for elders for retirement. Um, there is one that I know of. I think there are actually a couple of Wilson Matters, but that's in Florida. But that you have to have money to be there. There, there isn't a lot of places where if you don't have assets, you can get into and have a good life. Uh, I, I come from an older family. I'm 15 years different between my next oldest sibling and they go up. Uh, there's six others. My mother's 92. Uh, so I've dealt with a, aging throughout my whole life. And one thing that I never want anybody to have to go through is not to have a support system as they get older. Um, you know, we have often support system with younger, but I look at myself, you know, once either, you know, if my spouse is not around, then my nieces and nephews are within five to six years older than me. They're not going to be around. So they're not going to be able to, you know, if I'm in a, if I'm in assisted living, they're not going to become, because they're going to be in one too. <laughs> You know, don't have children. So, you know, for me, this is, it needs to be a support system of like people so that uh, we can help each other and ensure that we have a good quality of life that's not um, based on possible discrimination or uh, individuals 
thinking that you shouldn't be here for whatever reason because of your um, LGBTQ status. I just I have real concerns with growing older and being able to have a quality of life that will be the same as L others who are um, not LGBTQ. And then what I had mentioned before is I think that there is a there's an absolute lack of knowledge about what is necessary in terms of legal protections for LGBTQ elders. Uh, wills, um, durable power of attorneys, uh, healthcare proxies. Uh, there's just no one out there saying, you need to do this. <laughs> you need to get this done. You need to make sure that you're protected, that your wishes are there and that you have all of this in place because there may not be anybody out there to advocate for you when you're 85 or 90 or whatever age and you may not have all of your faculties. Um, you need to have yourself advocated for by your written word so that when somebody comes in and says, this person who has been my partner for 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, 40 years, has full control of all decisions in my life. And this is my decision. And this is where my assets go. And this is how I want to be treated. And I think it's so important and just something that's not out there enough and not discussed enough and not presented as a very important piece of the LGBT community. And it's not just someone for my age. Mark, do you have a will? I do not. I know the answer, Mark. <laughs> it, it's not just about me. It's not just the, about Nelda because you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. You don't. So take it from the lawyer in the room. Each one of you need to have a will, a healthcare proxy, a durable power of attorney. Get it written. You can do it online for free. Rocket. <laughs> it's an online thing for so that stuff. Get that stuff done and tell your friends and family, get it done because you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow and you need to make sure that your interests are protected and it's not the interests of someone else. So that, that's my soapbox. And a worthy soapbox it is. Um, I'm actually the power of attorney for about 15 people who are gay um, and have no children and in this case, no partners, um, but they need somebody. I mean, you don't want just some doctor that doesn't know you and frankly doesn't really care about you so um yeah it is absolutely necessary and i think you've touched on a lot of the things that were in stacy's comment so i'm going to turn it over to mark uh who had a question and then i'll bring it back to chelsea can i highlight just on one thing mandy said that i think super important absolutely is the conversation about like elders and growing older is not going to end. So like we call the baby boomers, like the silver tsunami, right? Like it's here, it's happening. But like my kids, the teenage generation, I'm calling it the aftershock because they're bigger than the baby boomers. So if we think elder care and that conversation or how we're supporting our elders is going to change, it's not because those that are 18, that generation is bigger than the boomers. So I think that needs to be like spoken and highlighted. So Mandy was right on with that, like highlight. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. And I will just say to Michael's point, 
if you need help with a will, the AARP has a bunch of resources out there. You could just go pick up a will, throw in what you care about, and you'll at least have something. So, uh, Mark, it is all you, my friend. Hi. Yeah, I guess my question is to Mandy, um, you know, as a person of color who's queer, or I should say LGBTQ, um, I often feel very isolated from both my communities, you know, both the Latinx community and the LGBT community. Um, there's a lack of sense of belonging. And so I guess my question is, you've been around for many decades, and I, and I just want to, I want to take a moment to just acknowledge your survival um, and what that means for you um, to be a black lesbian woman at, to exist at the intersections of that. And so how do you navigate, or I guess I should say, looking back, we've come such a long way, but there's still so much to do and so much work to be done to acknowledge how race and sexuality and gender intersect. And so how do you, what's your hope for the future? And what, and what is your challenge to the younger generation to make our world a better place for all of us. Thank you so much, Mark. I just really appreciated what you shared. I mean, I'm really, it's, I'm really feeling heartful um, on that. Um, well, a couple of things. Uh, one, I should also say, by the way, one reason why I've been doing this, I get paid. Think about this. I mean, this could be a vocation. The fact, Heather, you're starting what you want to do, you know, and Yvonne, it's like if you think about the traditional ways in which we make a living, you have to do the nine to five, no shade. But I think there's a great quote, don't mourn organized if there's a need, fill it. There's a reason why you have the NAACP. There's a reason why you have the National Council. You know, so the question would be if you've got an idea and you and, and then and more importantly, Mark, I think you get to bring all of who you are to the table. Um, and, I, and, and I would give a great resource. There are a lot of funders out there right now looking for places to put the money where they wanna make change happen, depending on how much you need and what you might wanna do. For me personally, this is me, I'll just share this. As a black lesbian, 72 year old living in Durham, North Carolina where Jesse Helms used to be whatever. But I remember going to a class and someone said, Jesse Helms who? You don't remember all that Southern bigotry that was going on, don't ever forget it, but then here we sit. Um, I would say, I'm gonna just give you an idea. Every day I wake up, I'm in day number 450 and on this thing, and I'm so done being on the Zoom stuff. Um, but you know, we have the National Black Justice Coalition, we have El Centro Hispano, we have the Muslim community. We now have one of the first ever Muslim women elected to the Durham County commissioners here in the state of North Carolina. That wouldn't have happened if she said, well, why can't I run, you know, whatever. Um, so I think it's a combination of if you have the if you have the opportunity, but what's around you, what's the what's the support system around you? Um, but also realizing that a lot of it also, in my opinion, is what do we have in common, Mark? If I go 10,000 feet up and I ask six questions that brings a lot of people to the table that might never get there because it's all about me and my issue. Can I name them for you? This is relevant. Clean air, clean water. No one should be hungry. No one should be homeless. Everyone should have access to health care and an education. If you put that stuff out, no matter what language, where geography, 
all of a sudden you're having people going, well, then it's not just be about being black or I'm being gay or I'm a lesbian or I live whatever. But then there has to be the people, in my opinion, who are the bridge builders. And I'll be honest, as a woman of color who's a lesbian, I've shown up in some meetings like, we don't want to hear nothing about no clean air. We want to just get our rights to be going to the bar. We can go do no shade. But unless there's something relevant to all of each one of our lives and we realize how interconnected they are and who are the bridge builders, that would be a great place to start. And I'll end with this. Here in Durham, we have this wonderful thing called social justice story time. We do it at the Durham County Library. We bring little babies in from the age of zero to five years old and they sit there and how do you have a five-year-old understand the word food justice? How do you have a four-year-old understanding the word about um, immigrants or something? But when you get it down to that level of just how you can just have this really general basic human decency or something, because I don't think any of us are born. I think born, we're just born wonderful bundles of joy and whatever. Um, but I love that. But that means zero, 80, zero to 90 in each one of those places that you find the connections. And then how do we also then find each other as well? Um, can I be honest? I get more people on one of these things than I would ever get them in a meeting in person. I have more people on this thing coming to our meetings than we would if we had to do it in person. So my question would be post COVID, how do we keep the connections? How do we keep what's going on? And I'll, I'll say this, on a scale of one to 10, 10 being bring it, I am a constant 10. Every day I wake up, what am I gonna get done today? I'm ready to go. But you, you spread that around and then we figure out how we're gonna make it a collective 10 for everyone else. So, but Mark, if I had to ask you, what do you, on a scale of one to 10, how are you feeling, Mark? What's your sense of optimism and what's going on? Um, I'm feeling, I've had a, a rough work week, if I'm being honest. Um, but I would say that aside, um, I would say that I'm feeling about an eight. And I'm feeling really optimistic about the future. And I, and I think, you know, having conversations like these are so important because it, it's like you can't look ahead without acknowledging where you've come from. And so to hear the history of where we've come from, I mean, I've done a lot of studying. I, I studied women's and gender studies in college, but to hear it from people who lived it. And I think about how COVID has been re-traumatizing for people from your generation who had to deal with the AIDS crisis and how, you know, thousands of people were dying and we didn't know all the details and we had to like isolate and not have connection. And so I think about how your generation is being re-traumatized through this pandemic. And I'm just so thankful to be able to pick your brain and hear your wisdom and give you your flowers while you're still here. And one thing, Mark, I'd like to say, just to encourage you too, is my heart's always so full to have you know, like others experiences in the room, but soon like you and I are going to be the ones that people ask, right. To be like on these panels. So we better be fucking showing up and doing the work because they're going to be like, what did you do in 2021 during the COVID crisis as a, you know, like queer young adult? So what did we do? Like, we need to show up. Like, what did we do to progress our community? Okay. Well, I feel like this segues beautifully into kind of a final question and then we'll go to our, our video. Um, so I think we got, I mean, I don't know about you, but when Mandy was speaking, I pretty much wanted to stand up and dance around. Um, this is the whole reason I'm doing this. <laughs> uh, it's the whole reason Yvonne is doing this. Chris is doing that. This is why we're here. Um, Heather, you know, what's your message of hope for say your kids' generation, you know? 
what would you say to them? Show up, you know, like, oh, I have a 17 and a 14 year old and their lived experience is so different. I mean, like our high schooler, their senior class president was like an openly gay man that like, I mean, they have a section in their yearbook on queer high school students. Right. And I'm just like, what? You know, like that would never have happened when I was in high school. So there is progress. And I think the more we continually can come back to those things that like make us human that Mandy was talking about too, right? Like clean water, healthcare, education. And that at the end of the day, what like I do affects everybody on this call, right? Like we're not separate, we're one. And I think I'm so hopeful because I think the younger generations are getting that more and more. Like they've seen the separation. I mean, we've seen like the unrest and even like a year ago this summer, you know, like I heard so many elders be like, we already fought for this, like what is happening? But it created another energy of like people to take up and fight again. So we need to continue planting those seeds. I'm a big fan of like the seven generation model. Like I'm gonna plant seeds that I will never see become trees. They just, it's not gonna happen in my lifetime, but I can plant those seeds and someone else can water them. So hopefully seven generations down the line, it's like this gorgeous willow tree that's providing like shade and peace and comfort for that generation. You know, like I think we're gonna come back into the golden age. We're pretty in the dark ages right now, but all of our spirits chose to be here in this world at this moment. So like, this is our fight and this is my kid's fight. And I hope I'm just raising really thoughtful men that can show up for what's going to come next because like our boys are black men like we have two biracial boys so it's like the intersection of two white lesbian women raising two black men of color in a world that is 2021 right so there's a lot of like growth and experience there too so i'm hopeful i think we got it like humans are resilient we're here for a reason our spirits chose it and I'm ready. Like Mandy said, like I'm on a like 15, like scale one to 10. I'm on a 15. Like, let's go. I have the energy. So I'm going to show up and I think the next generations will too. Awesome. Also standing up and cheering. Michael, bring it fellow. What do you think? So if I were to say to the next generation of LGBTQ plus is to say that be, a, be tolerant, understand that everyone is learning, including you. And so if not everyone gets all the words, all the terms, uh, they have come from a different point of view. And remember that you too may not realize the history. So have a conversation, have a discussion, don't make a judgment. And that's what I try to tell my students is have the discussion, find out the perspective. And you try to open your mind to understand that there are histories out there and that just because you weren't part of it doesn't make those histories irrelevant. Absolutely. I'd like to give a shout out. There are actually several educators on this call. So thank you all because we need more of you, a lot more of you. Um, okay. So other than that, thank you guys so much for being here. What an honor, honestly. There's some huge brains in this room and I'm just honored to even be here. So thank you all. Um, have a fabulous day and we will see you next week.
Yeah, for disability and queerness. So be that's right. Be square. Bye, y'all. Bye, everybody. Thank you. Thank you again for tuning into this episode on the Leading People First podcast. We hope you can join us next time live as we come together to learn, activate, and empower to make a difference in the world. Again, we meet every Thursday at 7.30 p.m. Eastern, 4.30 p.m. Pacific. You can find more information about the group and our events in the show notes down below. Don't forget to click that subscribe button to hear more of our conversations moving forward and be sure to share this episode with someone who needs to hear more. We're excited you've joined us in this movement. Let's go out into the world and lead together. Stay awesome.